0: I believe there is, you know, um, a neurobiological signature to the state of dependency, helplessness and and victimhood. Right. And then there is a signature to the state of self-authority. Right. And the state of control, a feeling of control within you. And that neurobiological state is consistent with regeneration in ways that we cannot architect. Right. Like we don't know how to how to architect healthy soil. We just don't know how to do it, and we may never know, right? What we do know is that if we get out of the way, it just happens. And we pro- let's say we provide the conditions, then it happens even faster.
1: Welcome to Collective Insights. Today we have Dr. Kelly Brogan on the show. She's a holistic women's health psychiatrist, and you're in for a treat today. This is a really great episode, and let's jump right in. Kelly, thanks so much for being here with us at Neurohacker today on Collective Insights. Um, I heard you have a new book out, Own Yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about what people would find in the book? Sure. So it, um, when I finished it, I don't think I would have
0: been able to appreciate how timely it seems to be at, at this moment. It's uh, released September 17th. And it's something of a sequel to my first book, A Mind of Your Own, but it's also meant to stand alone because I'm a big believer that, you know, books should be like little, little um, maps, you know, and little sort of guidebooks that, that can instruct you in what they promise to. And this is really meant to be a companion to the process of moving through health crisis um, and disidentifying as a patient so how do you move beyond your orientation around your chronic illness whether that's um, i'll put it in air quotes a mental illness or um, some sort of other identified uh, disease, how do you move beyond that? And is it possible? And what did the steps look like? And what are some of the pitfalls and um, challenges that you might encounter and how to understand that these are a natural part of an incredibly um, powerful transformational um, journey? Yeah. That I've witnessed so many um, hundreds, if not thousands, move through. And so this is, you know, me coming back up from the trenches to to tell you what I've
1: learned, so in my clinical practice, I have to first admit that I've like totally had a professional crush on you forever. I think what you're up to is so amazing. And I've listened to your podcast with like Aviva Rum and a few of the other ones. And I'm just delighted to hear a psychiatrist saying that psychiatric medications are not the end-all be-all. And what I see showing up in my practice is, in women who basically have been on psych meds for 15 years like they went through a divorce Uh, 15 years ago and they never got off the xanax or they went you know they lost a child god forbid and they never got off the lexapro so what you're talking about here is a health crisis how do you move through it how you how do you move beyond that where you don't identify with maybe a diagnosis of anxiety or depression
0: so it's such a good question because when we experience the fear that a perceived loss of control over our body mind and emotional existence might present right that fear is pretty much the same i would say from person to person whether you've just been diagnosed with terminal cancer or you've been labeled with you know major depression or you just know that you know, you're, you're bumping up against the limits of what you imagine you can handle. The fear has the same signature. And so it's that fear that understandably invites the the magic pill solution, right? So who would not take the bait? Who would not say, yes, I need help. I want relief. And, and so while in psychiatry, there is this understanding, and it's important to note that I, um, was trained as a conventional psychiatrist, very, very, very much believed in the pill-based approach to treatment to the extent that I specialized, I was one of the first 300 in the world to specialize in prescribing to pregnant and breastfeeding women. That's how much I believe that this was a legitimate path You know, to, to relieving suffering. So I understand what it is to perceive pretty much anything you're struggling with as a crisis, right? And and psychiatrists would like to say, yes, so let's reserve um, medication-based treatment for the you know moderate to severe of those um, you know struggling with symptoms of of you know, emotional imbalance, cognitive um, dysfunction or behavioral symptoms. But that's not the reality. And that's why we find, you know, one in 15 to 20, depending on your estimates, people in America taking these medications. We have one in four women of reproductive age, which is, you know, why that specialty was burgeoning at around the time I entered into it. Um, It's because when you're confronted with this, we as a society don't know how to hold you through it. And it scares us right so your friends get scared your parents get scared your spouse gets scared your kids get scared and it's this you know reverberative labyrinth of our own unexamined fears of the depths of emotions like shame rage you know deep sorrow grief sadness um and fear you know it we don't know what those are like we don't have intimacy with them and so we're all living with this kind of curated experience of who we imagine ourselves to be on the outside and there comes a point in some of our lives i note it to be typically between 35 and 45 years of age where the mask starts to slip and either you double down you know, and you put masking tape around it and, you know, extra rubber bands or whatever it is, and you enter deeper into the conventional treatment realm, um, or you take the invitation to forge a new path for yourself that may very well bring you where nearly every single person I've ever worked with says they arrive, which is that they finally feel like themselves. And I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, who wants to feel that, you know, like, don't we want to feel like something else, like prettier, stronger, richer, whatever. But it's, it's in fact, a beautiful truth I've come upon that we really just want to feel comfortable in our own skin and feel that, that essential signature of, of who we are. It's a process of, of self-discovery ultimately.
1: So tell us more about the process and that path. What does the journey look like? It, it sounds like there's issues in the interpersonal relationships. And so do we have to change other people, or does all of that change yeah. come from within?
0: Yeah. So, so I, um, I have a very big mouth. I'm I come from Irish Italian stock, and so once I was armed with science and allopathic, you know, medical knowledge, you know, I. I went into the business of convincing everyone around me that I was always right, right? So this is what is part of what we call like the shadow of a a given individual's um, collection of traits and defenses and adaptations and I have very strong shadow material in that realm. So, you know, when I was in the conventional realm, I was convinced that that was right and then I flipped over to the other side, convinced that that was right and that I just needed to, you know, convince and persuade every single person on earth that medication was, was the wrong way to do things. So, I've learned over the past you know, many years that that's actually not what it's about. And th- thank goodness it's not, because that's an exhausting way to live if you need other people around you to approve of and validate your reality. There is a very interesting paradox in what I've noted, which is that this is work. It's inner work. So This is work that you have to do as an individual. You're the only one who can do it. You cannot outsource it to a single person right? Not your spouse, not your doctor, not the government, you know, no one. And when you start the work, you will attract like-minded individuals. It happens every single time. That's a big part of what I'm trying to do is create this kind of holding container, this kind of community, so that you don't actually have to walk alone. You do the work alone, and you walk among like-minded folks. So it's certainly not a matter of repairing every relationship first. In my opinion, there is, you know, the Zen call it chopping wood, carrying water. There are very simple, basic practices that could be described as self-care practices, that themselves when methodically committed to which is the nature of choice right so i'm a big big believer in the power of choice you always always have choice and 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 that comes down to situations where you are uh, you seemingly objectively the victim there's still a choice and it may just be in how you're going to respond internally to what you're confronting right but that experience of choice is what you're exercising when you commit to this level of self-care and you say to yourself every single day I'm putting you first right and and this is um an uncomfortable practice for most of us because we feel tethered to the expectations of others to our to-do list to all the things that come around but that's why it's so powerful it is literally the primary ingredient in in the life-changing literally history-making cases that i've um, had the
1: privilege of of witnessing so i can just imagine some of my patients somebody i saw yesterday right like there's the but I can't, but I got to pick the kids up from school and I don't have enough money to afford a massage every week. So when you say self-care, is it an attitude or is it a list of things to do? Is it a full-time job? Does it cost thousands of dollars? What does it look like? Yeah. So it
0: is um, simply raising awareness around the daily choices that you're making. And so in my protocol, I mean, there's, I'm sure you would agree there, there's nothing really inherently magical about it and I can run over the pillars of it very very quickly. Um, however, I think the reason that I literally have a, a staff of medical volunteers who help me to write up these cases because they've never before been documented in, in the medical literature. The reason that those outcomes are possible is is simply because the the ritual is, as uncomfortable as it is, right? But it's also totally self-directed and really quite simple and accessible, right? So what what it consists of is a number of different choices that you make every single day, you're just gonna make different ones among the same choices you make every day, right? So we're raising consciousness, we're elevating awareness so that you begin to have what ultimately is a disruptive experience. And the reason it's a disruptive experience is because if, you, if you're like so many of the folks that I work with, you will feel different in the space of a month, if not the space of a couple of days. And there'll be like a kind of um, disruption of this concept that these things don't really matter, mm. right? Which is what we've been brainwashed around and indoctrinated with, in our dominant um, orthodoxy and allopathic medical culture for literally centuries, right? So we inherited this. This is deep in our cellular memory, this concept that who you are, your choices really are irrelevant because disease is a bad luck thing that happens at random and you just kind of deal with it, you know, like a good little girl or a good little, little boy. And that is, um, it almost, in one level, feels validating, right, because we say, oh, I knew something was wrong with me, right? You have that little moment of confirming that deep, dark voice that says something's wrong with you, right, and the otherness that you feel. Almost all of the patients I work with feel, they're the black sheep in their family, and they are—they feel apart from all of the rest of the people they perceive in society to be functioning just fine, right? So there's that validation. But unfortunately, the shadow of that, the dark side of that, is that there it, you adopt this, this victim posture, right? And you become dependent and helpless. And fundamentally, you have outsourced the locus of control outside of yourself. Now we are reclaiming that. We're, we're relocating that within. And it's this simple experience that begins to give your body that message. So, literally, I I believe there is, you know, um, a neurobiological signature to the state of dependency, helplessness, and and victimhood, right? Mm -hmm. And then there is a signature to the state of self-authority, right? And the state of control, a feeling of control within you. And that neurobiological state is consistent with regeneration in ways that we cannot architect, right? Like, we don't know how to how to architect healthy soil. We just don't know how to do it. And we may never know, right? What we do know is that if we get out of the way, it just happens. And we pro- let's say we provide the conditions, then it happens even faster.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like there's this reverence for the complexity and, and yes. the natural way of things. Instead of trying to take control and manipulate and uh, to re- take that reductionistic point of view and change this neurotransmitter or that one. You're saying, okay, yeah. let's, let's open to the entire process and Thank you. of health and healing. This is fantastic. I, I absolutely love it. And one of the, the tools that I use in my practice is, um, neural retraining or limbic retraining. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that? And can you speak to how your book kind of fits into that model or is there overlap? Yes. I love that. I, um, I have come
0: to appreciate that 100% of the women that I've worked with, and certainly in my online community where I don't have direct clinical contact with anyone, this seems to be, you know, uh, a robust reality, that they are all, um, they all identify as having experienced trauma. Right. And so whether that trauma is, you know, uh, a sexual violation or physical abuse, an acute event, or whether it was a state of neglect or it was something that wouldn't um, socioculturally be characterized as trauma. So, you know, maybe in fourth grade one time when their math teacher shamed them for, you know, handing in the test last or something like that, right, that we have these experiences that have a certain um, imprint that continues to be reified over our life process, right? And, and I think it's van Kolk who says that trauma is basically the reliving of the past in the present. And how do we unwind that, right? So yes. does that mean that we're just destined to be broken, right, forever? Our system without the intention to achieve that certainly fosters that culture, right? Where this is just something that you you deal with and you manage the symptoms. Um, but I think you and I have, have a different kind of interest, which is in asking, you know, the question why, right? like what it, what are your symptoms really about? what are they connected to? How deep do their roots go? um and then also beginning to rehabilitate from that point of origin. And so the autonomic nervous system and our understanding of the ways in which trauma adaptation, Really are wise, right? The, the, these yeah, adaptations. Right. I don't believe the body makes mistakes. So if if that's the default assumption I make, then I have to inquire as to why these these symptoms are are present, and how do we begin to send a different signal? So so I often say that this basic protocol is the portal. Um, you know, for, for, for life change simply because it allows for the conditions to send this, this really strong signal of safety as I call it. Right. Um, so I like to start there because if you engage, you know, anti-inflammatory nutrient dense diet, um, you know with a focus on on dietary antigens that have an evidence base for their impact on on the brain and the immuno inflammatory you know messaging that goes on between the brain and the gut um if we engage stress response right are these so the it,
1: pillars are we yes. orienting okay yeah. perfect so first yeah. pillar it sounds like is nutrients
0: yes it's based, nutrients. it's a very basic ancestral diet um that was refined and Uh, I would say anointed by my mentor, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, who, um, for those who don't know of him, uh, who worked for 27 years in holistic health and had outcomes specifically in terminal metastatic cancers and degenerative illness that have never been matched. Wow. So, you know, hundreds of them, long-term outcomes, because that's the real key, right? Yeah. Um, is so much of, of conventional medicine has very short markers, right? Like the average clinical trial is like six to eight weeks or in conventional cancer treatment, the, you know, very few people are looking 30,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: 35 years out from, yeah. from treatment.
1: It's a grand success so, if you're alive five years later, not exactly. if you're healthy 30 years later, right? And, and vital, right, mm-hmm. decades later.
0: So, you know, the dietary model is really, um, it's, it's very meaningful to me that, that I had the opportunity and privilege to have his eyes on my approach and really to make sense out of it. Because my dietary approach, because of the kinds of people that I, um, I guess, attract or, or work with who have experiences of having been labeled with ADHD, generalized anxiety, major depression but then who also might have comorbid and coexistent um, labels of multiple chemical sensitivity and autoimmunity and allergy and asthma, hypothyroidism, that these types of patients um, are are what he would call parasympathetic dominance. And so they do particularly well on a red meat containing diet, right? So um, there is, I don't know, I I was a former ethical vegetarian. Um, I, I certainly don't consider myself in a position to tell anyone how they should relate to their morality uh, and, and their inner compass around, you know, consuming animal foods. But I, I it did help me profoundly to understand the, the ancestral framework for how and why this would be a healing intervention, right? So how and why these individuals, if they um, were to persist in a, on a vegan diet perhaps, might continue to struggle with the symptoms that are presenting simply because those symptoms are evidence of autonomic imbalance in their case, right? So the the dietary um, pillar is uh, an adaptation of that. It's a 30-day, very, very, very strict, but also very delicious and permissive in terms of like culinary options. You know, uh, approach to eating that also resolves things that are very common in parasympathetic dominance, like reactive hypoglycemia or that roller coaster of blood sugar that can account for literally can account for diagnoses of panic disorder or sleep disturbance or chronic fatigue. It's pretty remarkable. Um, I'm sure you would agree. Yeah.
1: You're calling it parasympathetic dominance. And that's interesting to me because I would have thought you were going to say sympathetic dominance. So can you break down the science of, of the autonomic system in there? sure so in a nutshell and
0: again this is his his model and you know there are so many different approaches and and you know ayurveda so many of the people i work with were like they ask me well how does this relate to ayurveda and, and the doshas and there are so many systems the one that speaks to you is your system right like the one that that gives you a this expanded feeling of like wow look how much we understand right and that's the feeling i got when i i learned of 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 nick gonzalez and his outcomes and really spent time with him right like to, to me that was a huge part of um how i came to my particular approach but it's not to say of course that it's the only one so this approach is largely predicated on weston price's work um, Which you know, for those who haven't heard of him, was a dentist who toured the world um, in the early 1900s, inspired by the fact that he was observing the the change in the oral health of his patients um, that he ultimately related to a the industrialization of our food system, and so he he sought to identify the, the. primary pillars that were consistent across many different types of diets, you know, from the Eskimos to the Polynesians to, you know, the Amazonians, right? Like, what did they have in common? Because they eat totally different things, right? Um, And so some of those tenants and and also these different ecological niches as they represent how people are adapted to the temperature to the microbiome to the which of course we didn't even know about at that point but um, to the ecology of their environment right and the available food how the nervous system how we dance with nature to that extent that it molds and shapes the way our nervous system expresses itself and therefore the expectations that that system has in order to be achieve balance. Um, also Pottinger's work, and then uh, Nick Gonzalez had a mentor, Will, William Kelly, who was also a dentist, many brilliant dentists out there um, in this lineage. And, um, and help to apply this kind of work to cancer treatment and specifically terminal cancer treatment um, for which the outcomes in conventional medicine are either not available or are quite abysmal and extraordinarily expensive at that in the last year of life. Um, so this model looks at two poles, right? So there is the sympathetic pole and there's the parasympathetic pole. And the people along this whole spectrum gets sick in different ways under stress and insufficient access to the nutrients that help balance them right that come from certain kind of diet so the caricature of a sympathetic dominant is so i'm a sympathetic dominant um the caricature of a sympathetic dominant is somebody who has you know is naturally thin so when i was eating mcdonald's and stuffing my face with candy bars every single day multiple times a day i'd never gained a pound right so that kind of a person, and certainly not because I was exercising, because I never did that. (laughs) Uh, So somebody who's naturally thin, somebody who has um, an affinity on a personality level for structure and rules, um, and is often attracted to more kind of structured professions like um, law or medicine, um, finance, that kind of thing. And these folks, when they are out of balance, are more agitated, anxious, and they struggle with um, illnesses like solid tumors, right, so breast cancer, colon cancer, that kind of a thing, and also heart disease and um, cardiac disease. On the other side, are the parasympathetic dominance? Those are people he used to say who could look at a piece of toast and gain five pounds, right? So they have that kind of metab- metabolic vulnerability. Um, these are largely people who are like not morning people. They wouldn't exercise if nobody forced them to do it. They kind of get going by like one in the afternoon um, and prefer to kind of burn the midnight oil. And they have the, the stigmata of reactive hypoglycemia, so it's hard for them to go long periods of time without eating. They're kind of grazers. Um, and then when they are out of balance, um, they develop l- what are called liquid tumors, so lymphoma or leukemia, um, and then all of the, the diagnoses I mentioned earlier, right? So including the ones that, you know, people often present to me for clinically. Um, they're very easily captured by the psychiatric system. And of interest, these are um, like Picasso was one, right? Like so, according to Nick. So these are the the Bohemians, the artists, you know, the dreamers, the healers, the visionaries. Um, they're outside the box thinkers. They're creatives, and they often have a lot of trouble fitting their, you know, square peg into the round hole of our achievement-oriented, productivity-focused, capitalistic, uh, materialist society. And so, what's been the the deepest and most profound pleasure um, in in my career has been to witness these birds fly out of the cage, right? So, so as the those that I work with um, reclaim their essential selves from their diagnoses, from their medications, and walk free, which is not a pain-free process. Because you'd think, of course, who doesn't want to, you know, identify as, as no longer being a patient? Everyone. Not true. You know, there is a habituation that it's like a Stockholm syndrome. There's something that happens to us when we are um, exposed over and over again to this messaging around our, our, you know, victimization that actually becomes familiar and safe. So it's no small thing to walk out of this cage.
1: And do you ever discuss with your patient's secondary gain? This idea that there are some benefits of being sick, right? You get some time off, or you get more attention. So there, there are some things to like look in the mirror around as you go through this process. How do you approach that with someone? Through my own work with that concept, you know. So,
0: so my primary credential at this point in my life, you know, it may be my MD, it may be my training, um, but I'm not so sure. I think it's probably that I have myself been moving for the past 10 years through an awakening process with many of the um, attendant archetypal elements that are often described as the dark night of the soul, right? So, So how do I know about secondary gain? Because I experience it myself. And whenever there's something I think that I want, whether it's money or a certain logistical thing or something related to my work or something related to my daughters or whatever it is, whenever there's something I think I want that I don't have. That's the victim signature, right? Like, no fair. Why don't I have that? You know, it's just like the, the child self um, vocalization. Then I believe there's a reason that I want it the way it is. Right? So if you if you live in a universe that assigns to each and every human being the God-creating capacity of materializing the reality that reflects your inner state, if you choose to believe in that then inhabiting that requires that you see that in every single instance it's a natural law it never is violated right and so i i do believe that that if 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 we don't have something it's fundamentally because we don't want it and that's okay because it means we're getting something out of you know where where we're at we're getting something out of you know money is an easy example because you could say oh well it's just distributed you know randomly and that's unfair but maybe also there's a point at which you can say what am I getting out of struggling with finances, right? Or, or what am I getting out of um, my label as a patient? And w- how does it kind of get me off the hook? Um, we all experience this. So it's like a normalization of these patterns that just happen to be showing up in the health arena in this particular instance.
1: So is that one of your pillars? Let's go back to that. So nutrients yes. was number one. What's the next one?
0: The next one is, um, is related to what you were, you, know, you were asking. It's like, how do we um, I- interact with and engage the stress response head on, right? Like, how do we retrain that? And so I start very basically with three minutes a day of a uh, certain kind of meditation practice that derives from kundalini yoga. And honestly, the only reason I start there is because I was a very reluctant meditator. The, the, the folks who have the most trouble committing to it are by definition the ones who need it the most. Mm-hmm. I was one of those, for sure. And so I was very turned on by the fact that with kundalini yoga meditation I could feel a difference in a couple of minutes. Whereas with mindfulness-based meditation or other, um, you know, forms that are widely available and well-researched and I'm sure very effective for many people, it just seemed like a, a practice of self-shaming opportunity for me, you know, where I was like, wow, I really suck at this uh, because I was thinking about like what I need to pick up from the supermarket the whole time. And so with uh, Kundalini practice, you can you can have an experience with a very basic meditation that speaks to your autonomic nervous system in a couple of minutes but it has to be every single day so that's what i emphasize it's like pausing for three minutes every single day everybody has three minutes you may not have five minutes but you have three minutes guaranteed right so how do we work in that discipline um and then the other practice is a bit of a grab bag it's the it's detox right so if we acknowledge that we're living um, in relation to our environment that is fundamentally out of alignment and sync with what our biology you know deserves to interact with frankly um and we've really been flung far off the path and we're i hope in the process of being called back right of recognizing um the error of our ways and and beginning to raise our consciousness around our relationship to this living earth then how do we how do we deal with that right a hundred thousand unstudied chemicals you know pumped out of industry every day and glyphosate in our rainwater and 5g towers everywhere and how do we, how do we deal with that
1: well, pesticides and yeah you live in new york So actually, I've relocated to Miami. You have? Oh, okay. This is news. Um, Yeah. And for for reasons related to what we're talking about. Yeah. So tell me about your process there, because I think a lot of people do feel, I have to live in the city and I need to live where I'm at because of work or because of family. And and so you've upped and moved across the country. Yeah, exactly. And I was one of
0: those people um, because it probably was, oh gosh, I don't know, like a good Eight years or so, where I felt the dissonance, the the tension between um, city living and what I needed, you know, for mm-hmm. my well-being and health and wellness. And I'm a very fiery person, and to be in such a yang place as Manhattan is. Um, there's a time, there's a time limit, right, to how long that's going to be um, acceptable to my biology, right? And so, so. Part of what i found is that you don't have to focus on this this grand vision for how you're going to live in the perfect place and have the perfect life and do it all right right so we need to disabuse ourselves those of us particularly who are vulnerable to this concept of like oh i need i'm here to get an a plus on life right um and just fo- remember the chopping wood carrying water so we're just going to focus on those basic things because they have this um capacity to open the path so that you don't need to make decisions, that it just becomes clear what you need to do, right? And so as I began to really focus inward, to really consistently honor my body, myself, um, my pleasure... Right. So, as I began to prioritize one of the things that matters most to me in life, which is dancing, um, then certain things began to fall into place. And it was really love that brought me down here, um my relationship and my partner who's who's down here. but it ended up being the perfect reflection of my reprioritization of so many other aspects of my life because now i live in nature my feet my bare feet are on the ground every single day um, and i have created a life that you know is is a reflection of those priorities but i didn't set out to do it it was a it was an emergent phenomenon from my self-care so that's why we just begin with this and all will be well, <laughs> it, it, right? So so, so when you're living from that place of a regenerative um, neurological posture, you perceive possibilities, you perceive invitations, you perceive synchronicities, if you will, and you can respond to them without acting from old programs, right? So what I often observe is like, you know, people who go through the awakening process, at a certain point, they look around and like their entire familiar structure is in rubble. Like, I had a patient come to me once, and she's like in in distress, distraught about the fact that she's like, I used to think I was a Democrat and and a vegan, and then I had depression, and now I don't
1: know what the hell is going on. <laughs> right? Like <laughs> everything comes under question. Yeah, your identity completely changes. Right? You go exactly. from being a patient to being healthy, and that that's one of those foundational ones. But it sounds like yeah, there's other there's other pieces of that identity that starts to fall apart, and and you it, with this amazing opportunity to re-identify.
0: Yes, exactly. So you get to build the new structure, which again, sounds wonderful and amazing, but it comes with an uncomfortable responsibility. So that's a word. I love that word, right? Because it's response ability, right? Because we think of it like almost like this, like blaming the victim or like salt in the wound, right? If I, if I in, insinuate that patients have responsibility over their health, right? Like I like to say the good news and the bad news is that you're in control. And no, not not me, certainly. But but no doctor can tell you what you need to do. They can offer their suggestions and guidance and advice, but in the end, you know. And and it comes down to you know this reorientation around medicine and healthcare um, and even healing, right? You can partner with support caregivers, right? Helpers, but no longer can you go to them to tell you what needs to happen or how to do it or what you you know, ought to do as a good uh, compliant patient. So you're leaving that behind. So that's why in the end, this process is really a, a developmental process. It's a maturational process because you're graduating from a childlike psychology to an adult consciousness. It's really in many ways, I've observed a form of initiation, right? So indigenous cultures initiate their adolescence to adulthood By offering them experiences, whether it's through, you know, natural childbirth or through a vision quest, offering them experiences where they're brought to the brink of what they imagine they can handle. And with the support of community, they are shown, indeed, they can handle it. So they grow beyond that, those childlike fears and into a consciousness that can capacitate more. So a lot of what we are being asked to capacitate, I think, right now in in this moment in history is the darkness, right? Like, how can we develop a relationship with our fears, with our insistence that the bad is out there coming to get us, right? Right. Um, How can we learn to hold it and allow it to alchemize into power because that's what I find, you know, the, the, the people who are labeled, particularly with mental illness, um, and again, whether that's a social phobia or an adjustment disorder, because believe it or not, that's a phrase for what you are referring to earlier, you know, if you if you had a hard time adjusting to a divorce or a loss, um, you know, you can find yourself labeled and medicated really for life for decades, mm-hmm. that these are incredibly sensitive individuals. And, and how can we reframe um, and re-understand sensitivity as being actually um, a power, right? right. Like, actually, like the focus of your your gift, and and that sounds like poetic and whatever. But I've literally observed this over and over and over again to be true. That as you come into relationship and a new understanding, you tell yourself a different story about this sensitivity. I mean, these people are are here. To, to show us where to go, literally, as a collective, as a planet. Yeah. I certainly don't know because the way I think, you know, it's like ones and zeros. You know, I, I don't have th- those qualities. And and so I rely on the liberation of, of these individuals um, and their very, very unique gifts to, to light the path forward because we don't know how we're going to. Um, Begin to to move from the mess we've made. We need that kind
1: of um, novel perspective. And this is responsibility—that ability to respond. That exactly. I, I love that Just changing the way we think about that word. Right? Words are so yes. innocuous, and like you can you can really shift how someone might respond. I can see what you're saying, where a patient might have a um, a resistance to that word to really taking that word on and feel further victimized but the way you described it that is an incredible power it's really taking back your power now one question I do have is what about like severe psychosis is there a place for these medications and in bipolar schizophrenia or in more severe mental health manifestations how do you think that should be addressed
0: yeah, so this is one of the the, the most common criticisms levied at my um, insistence that anyone can heal is oh well that's you know that's nice Dr. Brogan that you have um, some tips for the worried well you know and and so being the adversarial person that I am temperamentally you know many years ago I set out to to prove um, that assertion wrong. Right. And, and so that's a lot of what I've dedicated myself to um, evidencing, both in the form of direct video testimonials, but also um, medical case reports. We have a case series um, about to be published and we have a randomized trial um, underway, IRB approved, amazingly. Um, and I do this almost, you know, for sport, but really to to expand um, the potential that anyone who might need to know that this is possible comes into contact with that information. Because you said, is there a place for medication? The place for medication is for whomever it is right after they have full information. Okay, so I am very passionate about informed consent. Perhaps because of some you know karma I'm burning off, having never ever one time in my conventional career properly offered that to a patient. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because I was hiding anything. It was because I didn't know. In this moment in time, no, you know, intelligent, educated human on the planet who's prescribing medications has that excuse any longer. Because with the democratization of information, we all have access. You know, anyone can choose to go on PubMed and learn the other side of the story. The challenge is that you really are only incentivized to do that as a practicing clinician when you yourself bump up against the glass ceiling of what conventional medicine has to offer. So most of the renegade MDs you know, you'll know, you know about took a turn because of their own health experience and, and I'm no different, right? So that's the real challenge and that's why I feel so passionately about getting this information out there of the untold story of the risks of these medications simply so that people can make informed decisions. You're not in a position to do that at the hands of your prescribing doctor and it's not because they're a bad person with malintent it's simply because the system is set up like i say you wouldn't go to a, a butcher to learn about veganism right if you're going to go to a conventional doctor who believes in prescribing you're going to find that version of the story so arm yourself with the fuller version You know from other sources then make your decision right and you will know what's the right decision for you but what i have found is that the the data suggests the science itself because i came to this through the science i didn't you know I, i certainly wasn't like some bohemian natural oriented hippie who was like out there trying to prove natural medicine was real I came to it through the science, through my disillusionment, because I had never been told that I could put an autoimmune disease into remission. I did so through lifestyle change, and I said, hold on a minute, I never was taught this for one minute in in medical school and residency and fellowship, right? So it was through that lens that I began to learn about the science that suggests that medication-based treatment of severe mental illness of any mental illness. First of all, let's take a little sidebar to say that mental illness is in no way, uh, you know, a, a, a valid disease entity, right? So in, in psychiatry, it's very important to remember we don't have tests, we don't have any objective measures. It is entirely subjective, like a, a Cosmo magazine quiz. That is what we are basing the sometimes multi-decade prescribing of multiple medications never before studied in combination on. Okay, so so what of those long-term outcomes? Well, I was very interested to learn of what Robert Whitaker had to say in his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. And he's a journalist, no skin in the game. And what he had to say was, hmm, we have ever more disability with ever more prescribing of psychiatric medications, all categories of psychiatric medications, right? What's up here, right? So what he uncovered through these 16 studies I had never heard about in my training was that it's actually the medications themselves that are inducing disability. That's a
1: very hard pill to, to swallow, pun intended, right? So, so what of that? So, So, right, what you would expect is that if you're getting better diagnosis, quote unquote, better diagnosis, better treatment, people are getting more prescriptions, more medical care, you would have a reduction in the disability. And what he found was exactly the opposite. Exactly the
0: opposite. So the very interventions that we are applying to resolve presenting symptoms are themselves inducing chronic and recidivistic versions of that presenting illness. And, you know, don't take it from me. Um, you know, he he's cataloged the science, and I I never ever prescribed again after I finished that book, and so I have seen, you know, what 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 does the natural history of uh, you know uh, depression crisis look like, right? And so he harkens back to some of the older literature, you know, from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s that looked at the natural history before pharmaceutical medicine was the dominant um, accepted intervention and found, you know, that we've we've created a monster here. So, you know, I have seen that, you know, one of the cases that came out of my um, protocol was a, a young man who had what would be considered um, chronic treatment-resistant schizophrenia and other Tourette's and other diagnoses, comorbid diagnoses. He was um, polymedicated, so multiple medications, and he was so um, disabled that his mother was considering uh, honoring his wishes uh, for death and considering bringing him to Switzerland for euthanasia, oh my God. literally. And this mother, I mean, this woman, I could tears come to my eyes just thinking about her, like her dedication to her son and her love for him. And to be brought to that place where you feel that hopeless, um, that it's the most merciful thing, you know, that you could do is help your son to die, okay? In five weeks of these changes that we're talking about here, he was applying for volunteering, he had quit smoking, and for the first time, he was like going on walks with his mom outside in nature, and he continues to improve to this day. (laughs) And every time this happens, so again, remember my personality, I'm like, waiting for the entire house of cards of medicine to fall, And nothing happens right it's always considered an outlier and i would have done the same from the inside i would have said oh well then maybe he was misdiagnosed right so we're not going to wait for the system to evolve catch up validate or honor this it's like bucky fuller says you create something new that renders the system obsolete. That's what we're doing here. But suffice it to say that I have seen not only that this intervention, set of interventions, you know, around lifestyle medicine has the capacity to resolve severe mental illness, but I've actually seen that it has the capacity that conventional medicine does not have, period. So it's not even a competition. It has what conventional medicine does not have. And offers that with only side benefits, with infinitesimal cost related to a lifetime of patienthood, and with the, you know, potential for the actualization of your, you know, essential human experience on this planet, with the reclamation of vitality that isn't even in the, you know, the set of clinical goals in in the conventional arena. So
1: these are these are incredible gifts for people who are stuck in that paradigm like just to know for everyone who is experiencing mental health or has been diagnosed with a depression anxiety mental health disorder for them to know that there is a possibility of not only dealing with the disease managing the disease but there is the potential to completely get rid of it and achieve health and give your gifts to the world yes Right. yes and it's the it involves the
0: the courageous um, choice to turn towards yourself and to stop running. So it involves this understanding that if if you stop perceiving this as something wrong with you and something to fix, and you begin to orient around your symptoms as a primary message and an invitation to align and you commit to these very basic choices. So I set the 30 days, the rest is up to you, right? So I can't set the rest. I can offer this this reset, right? I call it a reset. And I know that it works. And it's very basic and it works for the reasons you understand, which are it it sends the nervous system the signal of safety so your body can take over and to begin to heal itself on a physical level. And then you have all of this liberated energy to begin to explore the psychoemotional realms. Right. So where else are you lying to yourself? Where else are you running? Where else are you hiding? and you step by step by step walk in the direction of loving yourself more and more and more completely. Ten years on this journey from my Hashimoto's diagnosis, every single day I am seeing how I judge myself, how I limit myself, how I hide from myself. And every single day I say, wow, all right, I'm going to I'm going to work on this one you know so it's this this endless process of coming more and more into an experience of um a new kind of strength it comes from a very different place of owning all of the aspects of who you've always been
1: that's beautiful and it starts with the the simple things the chop wood carry water the practice the daily practice i love it so you're a scientist it sounds like from the very beginning um if you had any study that you could get done with an unlimited budget what do you Mm. think is missing in the research what do you think is missing in the literature
0: Mm. so i would love this study on so many different dimensions um, including things like vaccination and antibiotics and you know all of those um interventions that we assume to be the only legitimate choice uh under duress right Mm -hmm. Home birth. I mean, you name it, right? So um the the study that I would love is, okay, so you have two inpatient units, right? And you have one inpatient units, that unit that is the gold standard conventional allopathic model. You know, there are thirteen of locked units at Bellevue where I trained in New York City. And you know, they do the best that they can within the system. The people who work there, many of my friends are, you know, are are tirelessly devoted to to their patients, right? So, that is the conventional model. And they use medication and they feed them hospital food and they do all the things that they do. And then you have a, uh, a comparator where you have folks with similar presenting symptoms and they are in a healing environment, what I would call a healing environment, right? So they're provided all the pillars we just described. Um, including you know, detox practices um, like coffee enemas, which I learned from my mentor, organic you know, food, uh, and there is a high prioritization of training them in the ritual of self-care. So the, the self-care you know, sort of engagement that I described takes about like two to two and a half hours of your day. It's a lot, right, from your morning routine and ritual being totally different, you know, than it would have been otherwise. And once you layer in all of these different things, I mean, this is true for me to this day. My, my priority in my day is my self-care. The rest of my life is around that. And, you know, my self-care includes dancing. It could include many different things, could include massage, whatever it includes as you determine after that 30-day reset. But so it's beginning to enculturate people around self-care, and then there's, you know, community that is um, growing this empowerment consciousness and this personal responsibility and beginning to walk each alone, but together, right? So you compare the outcomes of, of those two in a short period of time. So we could stick to like, let's say the two-month model, right? How do people report their experience? And that's a lot of, you know, what we're trying to do with this study that we're we're doing here. It's never been done. It's never been done. So it's just a basic comparison, you know, like with vaccination, the never one time, never, ever, ever, has has there been a population studied who who lives under the principles of non-engineered and non-pharmaceutically managed immunity, and then a population who opts for the current schedule. How do they do? What's their life experience, right? So these kinds kinds of basic naturalistic um, observational studies are actually very powerful and, and important, I think.
1: Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Kelly, thank you so, so, so much for joining us today. This has been so inspiring. And um, I, I can only imagine the work that you're doing is changing lives, not just the people that you see individually, but everyone who reads your book, everyone who listens to a podcast, I'm sure, has an experience of like, wow, this is what is possible. And so thank you for the work that you are doing day in and day out to show people what's possible. I really appreciate you taking the time to share it with us.
0: Thank you. It's really an honor to speak to such a like mind. So thank you for having me.
1: And if people want to learn more about what you have on offer, not just about your books, um, but a web address, is there a phone number to call? How can they get in touch with you? Sure. So we're over at KellyBroganMD.com and
0: own yourself um, is on pre-order and out and i'm hoping um to really gather some grassroots energy around it so that it can continue um, to have the impact that a mind of your own did and kind of extend that for people so that they have the tools you know and then we've done everything we can to provide all of those tools at different levels so free information on um on the site and then you know, a low-cost membership, and then of of course, my clinical intervention as Vital Mind Reset is a is a deeper commitment. Um, so it's all it's and all there. And is
1: that the 30-day program, Vital yes. Mind Reset?
0: Okay, great. yeah, that's exactly what I do with my patients, and that's at scale. What we've seen actually seems to work better. Um, Than the one on one work that I do. And at first I was like, ooh, ouch, that's rough. You know, like the more involved I am, the worse the outcome or something, the slower the outcome. Um, But it's been, yeah, it's been really, it has a life of its own. I mean, it almost has to do with me at this point. And it
1: proves the point, right? Like what you've said, that it's not about the doctor, it's really about the personal work,
0: right? And the community. And the community, you know, to be in, we deserve to heal. In in a collective. Yeah. Um and not have to fight, right? Like I always tell people, if you're if you're fighting with your clinician, oh, gosh. please safe, Right? Yeah. Like
1: oh my it's, goodness. It, you'll
0: never get to that place where your nervous system can exhale. Right. And that's
1: that's the whole that's the holy grail. There's no therapeutic alliance there. So I just have one more thought before we leave this. Um And just thinking back to the mother you were describing whose son Mm -hmm. she was considering helping him die because of the degree of helplessness and severity. Imagine that mother walking into your study. I think intuitively, no matter what who the mom was that you asked, where would she put her son? Right? Like nobody would wanna everyone would want to be in your group, right? No one would wanna go to those locked rooms at Bellevue. No one
0: I would go farther and say, no one wants to take medication, Right. period. It's like not even a Tyler, no one wants to really, we want to feel okay. Yeah. <laughs> we simply want to feel safe and okay and worthy um, and comfortable in our own skin. It's just that we don't know that there might be another way to do that. And I also believe that we're at this awkward place in our evolution as a collective where we still kind of want evidence, right? Like mm-hmm. it's not intuitive to believe the way it might have been for indigenous cultures that you could transform illness. So obviously that's, I mean, I'm in your corner, right? Like if, yeah. if, this, if this feels like a yes, let me show you the science around it because that's what convinced me. And I know there are many people who who want to see that evidence, who want to see that this is um, a science-based approach. And, you know, I know you know it is. Mm -hmm. This isn't, you know, we're not in the realm of, like, you know, shamanism necessarily, right? Like, this is still, I am a bridge from that uh, conventional approach and with deep compassion for the fact that people only engage that because... They imagine it's the only choice.
1: Although, with some of what you've said, I, I am curious what you think about shamanism and plant medicines and the role of psychedelics in so this it's world.
0: In the, it's in the book.
1: Yeah, I have a whole chapter
0: on it. Um, and again, you know, we don't have to. At this, is such a fascinating time because we don't even have to get into the realm of like anecdote and personal experience, and the the science speaks for itself mm-hmm. pretty incredibly at this yeah. moment in time. And so I've I've collected a compendium of the the science around particularly psilocybin ayahuasca and lsd and um it's it's pretty extraordinary i am still a believer in kind of an order of operations um and so i i'm pretty rigid around this 30 days being the starting point yeah Um, because you could end up on all sorts of spiritual journeys with 15 different healers and taking 800 supplements a day before you have a, a deep understanding of, of what it is to visit with your baseline, right? So so let's kind of like start there and reserve mm-hmm. the heroic measures for when they call to you.
1: Yeah. I love that. And there's a degree of safety I think in, in, in that that should be acknowledged. Um, Kelly, again, I feel like I could ask you questions and talk to you all day long. This is so much fun. and. Uh, really really and sincerely so inspiring so thank you again for taking the time and sharing your message i know it's going to be so valuable to our listeners all right take care and good luck with the book i'll be curious to hear how this community develops thank you thank you so much Bye. thank you for being with us for this conversation with dr kelly brogan if you have questions about this content please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com podcast and we'll work to get those answered by kelly on a future episode If you liked this episode, then please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share it with all of your friends who are interested in upping their mental capacity. And make sure to subscribe to Collective Insights wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode.
0: See you next time.